bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. Your thousand dollars cannot reproduce until it enters into a covenant with the soul. Baptist Church will pick at their funeral. You can put that thousand dollars. We will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where biblical Christianity meets American evangelicalism face to face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, His ministry, and we pray that uh, He will be with you and us tonight. Again, some repeated questions are being asked about because of the change of venue. One, are we going to load the new shows aimed at American evangelicalism on the website? Absolutely. In fact, we have revamped the websites for better usability and plan to launch it on April 3rd or 4th. Check that out. You should be able to watch all of these programs on HOTM.TV within the next two weeks. Number two, do you think we will be airing Heart of the Matter on TV 20 again in Salt Lake City? Um, That would be no. Uh, A definitive no. Uh, KTMW TV 20 made it clear they want nothing to do with the ministry, and uh, we receive that. We appreciate the opportunity they afford us to be on the air in the past but in the future probably won't be happening through TV 20. Number three, how can I watch reruns of Heart of the Matter LDS taped over the last seven years. There's three ways. We talked about it last week. First, on the NRB network, uh, Sky Angel and DirecTV channel 378 every Friday night and Tuesday in the early a.m. That's one way. Second, you can go to our website at www.hotm.tv and watch our archives. And third, you can go to YouTube, type in Sean McCraney, Mormonism, HOTM, Heart of the Matter, etc., and all kinds of video clips will come up. Number four, do you still need financial support since you are no longer on television in Utah? Uh, more than ever, and let me tell you why. First, we moved to a television network, the NRB, which is much larger than the former, and our costs are double for an hour of TV Uh, there than they were in Salt Lake. Second, by providing streaming video to you like right now, what happens is every time somebody gets on that, it costs us more and more and more. So as we continue to grow, it's going to cost us more. And since this is the only way we are doing the new Heart of the Matter shows uh, through streaming, um, and there's no avenue to watch it on television, that audience is growing and costing us Uh, more. And third, we've had to build our own streaming studio and have had to purchase our own equipment as a means to do it. Uh, We're also going to hold our weekly Bible studies there and we've decked that place out. We're going to show you a video uh, tape of the interior of it next week. But so bottom line, since leaving uh, the station in Salt Lake, uh, all of our costs have gone up, but we completely stand by our uh, model of how we have always approached ministry and finances. 
We firmly believe that where God guides, God provides, and we have all in our ministry seen this proven time and time again. Uh, We also believe that widows and people on a limited fixed income are never under uh, the financial uh, obligation or directive to support ministry, but that ministries are really under the obligation to support them, and the churches are really under the obligation to support them. And then we also believe, firmly believe, that nobody should feel compelled to give, feel guilty. There's no pressure, no guilt, and no promise on our part that God will bless you if you give to the ministry. In fact, he might do the opposite. He could actually make your life worse. Not because the ministry is bad, it's just God is unknowable in how he works things. So there's no way we could promise that if you supported the ministry, God will bless you. That's, that's a big false lie. So... Uh, This is why it's always between you and God. Everything you do, between you and God, and you work it out with Him. We simply let people know that there are needs, and we ask you to prayerfully consider uh, uh, His wisdom in the matter. All right? Okay, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, God, we love you and need you, and uh, we just seek your uh, Spirit to pour out upon those who are seeking for truth. Help us as we articulate this message tonight. Be with our staff, Burl and Brandy, Kathy, uh, Mary, uh, Derek and Danita. And uh, just help us to put this together in a, in, a, in a responsible and good way. We love you, Lord. We seek you. And forget, forgive us for the errors that we make. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, listen. Um, I want to say something clearly as I can to try to tie up everything that we talked about in the last three weeks and everything that we will cover in the for the rest of the year never ever confuse culture with Christ and never believe that the practice of religion is synonymous with being a saved child of God Uh, again and perhaps to put it better culture is not Christ and religion is not a saving relationship How about an example of what I'm talking about? Two days ago, the world, including about a billion Christians, I'm guessing, celebrated what is known as Easter. Many people associate the culture of Easter with being of Christ and the idea that just because they attended church on this time of the year that they are in his favor. This past week on a marquee on a large Methodist church just up the street from our house, it said annual Easter egg hunt this Sunday. Uh, Now, admittedly, for many believers, the fact of his resurrection is not lost amidst the purchase of new pastel-colored clothes or eating chocolate rabbits or dyed eggs and feasts with the family. It's not lost on that. They they can do both things and, and they get the difference. But nevertheless, in many cases, his glory is dimmed or at least shared and in some cases even lost in the culture and religious deluge that accompanies this religious holy day. And of course, Christmas is typically much, much worse. Now, if you go to our website at www.campuswith-inbetween.com, you will read the following regarding holy days. And it says, we reject the need for holiday-oriented services. This is our church. This is how we do it. Which commemorate Christmas, 4th of July, Easter, Halloween, or individual birthdays. We're not against individual believers celebrating such occasions, but refuse to let them have place in the limited amount of time we have set aside to worship God in spirit and in truth. Remember that, in spirit 
and in truth. I emphasize in spirit and in truth because many believers will put all sorts of emphasis on the spirit feeling side of uh, religious activities but completely ignore the other side, which is the genuine, which is truth. And for genuine worship of God to occur, it has to be done in spirit and in truth. What I mean by this is many people will justify the celebratory side of things accepted in Christianity, holidays, practices, speaking in tongues, holy rolling, uh, this, this kind of celebratory, uh, visceral side, uh, claiming they can feel God's presence with them, altogether ignoring the truth of the things that they are doing or supporting relative to what the Bible says. We got to see what the Bible really says about the things that people uh, embrace and practice. Certainly, there's a spirit that comes with singing, Santa Claus is coming to town. There's a spirit with that, but there's no truth to it. He's not coming to town. Okay, so in true worship of God, the two have to be there. Uh, again, don't take it wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not fanatical. I, I would get gifts for Christmas and eat Easter candy and take my grandson uh, trick-or-treating. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying relative to the church's participation in these things, the church ought to represent a bastion of spirit and truth for people, not assimilation of these things of the world. Uh, remember... Um, today the church tends to be, in my opinion, a little bit bigger on spirit and less focused on truth. In fact, the word Easter is actually used in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, verse 4, it says the word Easter. Now I'm going to show you how these, these cultural things work their way into uh, Christianity. It's the worst word translation in the King James uh, uh, edition of the Bible. The word Easter is translated uh, from the Anglo-Saxon word ostre, and uh, who was the pagan goddess of fertility and spring. She is celebrated by many ancient cultures far and wide. Scandinavians call her Ostra. The Germanic tribes call her Ostern. And she's the goddess of the vernal or uh, autumnal equinox. Pagan rites and things related to the occult are often tied to experiences in nature, like when the sun changes and the days are longer or shorter, and that's when the pagans usually do things. This is why Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism and members of a family that was steeped in occult practices, chose the autumnal equinox, the day of the autumnal equinox, to seek otherworldly spirits to help him locate buried gold, and every year thereafter for six years went to the Hill Cumorah to commune with those spirits about the buried gold, which ultimately turned into supposedly golden plates. So the Phoenicians called the pagan goddess of Easter Ostre and Astarte, and the Assyrians and Babylonians called her Ishtar. Uh, these names, uh, we get estrogen, Ostre, estrogen, and it's obviously tied to female reproduction and fertility. So all of these words are closely related to the transliterated English word uh, Easter. Now listen, for more than a thousand years before Christ was born, the pagans celebrated Ostre. They celebrated Ishtar. They celebrated the vernal equinox and the rites of spring. And they did this through all kinds of sexual rites and rituals uh, and by paying homage to this goddess of fertility. To worship God in spirit and, 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 in truth, 
we have to recognize that there has always been this unseen battle going on between the powers of light and dark through the universe even to this day. And whatever, with whatever means the God of this world, Satan, can use to get seekers of truth off track, people who are saved Christians off the mark, he will use them. If it, even if it includes hunting for cute little Easter eggs or anxiously awaiting for a man in a red suit to come down a chimney, whatever it, chimney, whatever it is, the, the, there's always going to be. It happens to, I, I get diverted in my attentions every day. I can be driving along the freeway singing a praise to God and thinking about Jesus and, and praying and look up at a billboard with a scantily clad woman and I'm diverted. This is his deal. He loves to divert attention away from God and he uses the things of the world to do it. So it's one thing to smile and hand out candy to kids in the neighborhood who are there trying to get it on Halloween or to let kids open gifts on Christmas morning and exchange gifts with people you love. But it's completely a different matter when Christianity, which ought to be about his birth and death and resurrection every single day, when Christianity embraces these pagan appellations and elements and brings them into Christian observances when we ought to be praying and reading the word, etc. On Monday of this week, I went to the gym with my wife and the ladies who run the front counter there are very LDS, they're active Mormon. And they know I'm not a fan of tying my faith in Jesus to holy day observances. And I know they think it's kind of humorous that I'm kind of an oddball. And uh, one of them with sort of a blank, innocent look on her face said Monday morning, so Sean, did you do anything for Easter uh, yesterday? No, I replied with a smile, I did nothing for Easter. And uh, then the two of them kind of chimed in with alternating questions and said, you didn't even eat a chocolate bunny. And the other one said, you didn't even have a peep. And it was interesting to me that it amazed me actually that they associated celebrating Easter with eating uh, produced candies for the, for the event and nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing was mentioned. Did you even think about the resurrection? That didn't come out of their mouths. It was all relative to the cultural applications. When it comes to our faith on God, on God incarnate who saved us through his shed blood, we want the freaking truth. We want the truth, especially when we go to church and we expect church to leave the world and everything it feeds us uh, all outside and give us what is really true about him. So I'm of the opinion that the great counterfeiter originated this pagan spring rite through false goddesses as a preemptive strike to counter the glorious resurrection of our Lord. And he would get millions to share the glory of the resurrection with these competitors, if you will. Now, in some ways, he's been quite successful. That is how we got the word Easter in our Bibles. And this is for you inerrant biblicists out there who say the Bible is word for word in our present versions perfect. You're going to really not like this. You're wrong on that too, and it does damage to teach that. Uh, but this is how it happened. The pagan Oster festival coincided with the Passover, which was a celebration in anticipation of the coming Messiah, essentially. And of course, once Jesus died as the Lamb of God during the Passover, 
Christians began to celebrate with dinners about uh, his resurrection and uh, his suffering and the Passover as it linked to him and what he did. So we have Easter coming first, we have the Passover coming uh, second, and we have Christian celebrations coming third, all at the same time, at the same time, all right? Same days, actually. So over the years, the word Passover, Pascal or Paschel, was used synonymously with the word Easter. They would say, you know, are you just going to celebrate Passover? And some people would say, oh, yeah, we are. It's around the time of Easter, uh, yeah, all that stuff. And, and, and only because they, they occurred at the very same time. Then the name was exchanged. You know, they would say Easter and everybody knew it meant Passover. Or they'd say Passover and people knew it meant Easter. And then it was replaced. Passover and the Christian meal was replaced. And, and Easter took, took on. Before we knew it, we had the Bible translators inserting the Anglo-Saxon term ostre into the Word of God where it, where it reads Pasha for Passover. So White Wycliffe, he stood firm and he left Pasha, Pasha in the translation. But Tyndale and Coverdale, when they got to their translations, they chose the word Easter uh, to put it in the Word of God. And it forever tied Christianity to the pagan ritual of Ostre and ultimately to all the trappings it uses to honor her goddesses, including eggs and bunnies and pastel colors. So this is why last Sunday, a nice, large, beautiful Methodist church full of people seeking to honor God and love God uh, near our house broadcasted to parents to bring their kids to church to participate in their backyard lawn uh, Easter egg hunt, you see, and it's, it's intermingled. I would suggest, however, that the far more deleterious effect of Christianity allowing itself to assimilate with such pagan rituals and pageantry is how these facts will and can be used to create doubt in the minds of, of naive and innocent and good Christian believers down the road, especially in the day of the internet. Uh, this is the problem of allowing non-truths, whether doctrinal or in praxis, to exist in the church because they will be used by the enemy to crush the faith of unsuspecting and uninformed believers. For instance, I, I talked about this on our Sunday service. I did it last year at, at uh, uh, Easter time. And uh, I know people who have heard me talk about this three times now. If they were approached with the subject, hey, you're a Christian. Did you even know that, that, that Easter started off as a pagan holiday? They say, yeah, well, I knew that. Yeah, it, so what? Uh, it just came about because of this reason. And they're equipped. They're prepared. But if you're not taught those things and people are innocently online and they learn that this was really not part of the biblical picture, at least not in the way we celebrate it today, uh, then they run into trouble and they start to say, wow, what is true then? And it becomes a, a big mess. We see it all the time when our kids go to college or even high school in these days. It is here that they will learn the real history, let's say of Easter or, Christ, or Christmas. We could go into that whole thing too. And uh, those young in the faith or weak in the faith are unprepared to handle the onslaught that will result in the religious naivete. And they experience a crisis of faith and we lose a lot of them forever to the world. Now it's happening more and more and the fault lies. Ooh, what year is that, uh, Derek? Uh, the fault lies squarely on the shoulders of reverends 
and pastors and priests and popes and so-called prophets. It lies squarely on their shoulders because they have allowed and even promoted these worldly things into the church because it brings people in. And it allows them to have more people in, which in the end always amounts, some of them do it because they want more saved souls, some of them do it because it amounts to more money. And when, you, when they have done that, they have done a disservice to their flock, uh, unsuspecting and trusting in the things that they allow and do. It is every pastor, every reverend's duty to protect the flock and to nourish them by and through the word of God in spirit and in truth. It has to be that combination, nothing less. Now, I've used the idiotic recognition of Easter here tonight as a type or model to introduce a dozen of other non-biblical fuglies, I call, uh, that exist in fundamental Christianity today. I call them fuglies because they are freaking ugly Christian practices and doctrines that when examined under real biblical scrutiny, they do not hold water and they end up weakening the faith of people who have innocently bought them and believe them to be true. And so, well, people will say, well, why don't you just let, you know, people believe what they want to believe and practice their Christian faith like they want? And isn't there freedom in Christ? There absolutely is. As far as I'm concerned, as an individual, you can participate in every single holiday there is, dress up, decorate your house, hold feasts. I'm going to love you the same as my brother and sister in Christ. Individuals, that is not the point. The point is always, because we're examining the church, what is the church doing who has the job to teach in spirit and in truth? All right? So uh, it has to be examined. And uh, because what happens like with the LDS? They come out of Mormonism. They discover truly firsthand that Smith lied and he created a whole bunch of myths and fantasies which they bought in hook, line, and sinker throughout their whole life and they experience a scorched earth thing where they are like, nothing can be true because the Mormon church fed me such a bunch of lies. I can't believe I bought into it. Then they go to a Christian church and then they start practicing some of the things that are going on in that today and then they experience it again when they find out that a lot of the stuff that has been heaped upon them is simply not true. In Christian fundamentalism, which I differentiated from Christian Laodiceism last week, I explained the difference. These non-biblical traps, these non-biblical traps include extremely dogmatic positions on the age of the earth, on the Bible that we have today being word perfect, on demands for uber literalism, uber literalism and for the most simple reading of the word to occur and take precedence. Uh, they, they push and promote faith healing to no end. Uh, some promote prosperity teachings, dominion theologies. Some say you can only read the King James Bible or else you are not born again or saved. Uh, they will say things, uh, they will get involved and say Christian politics must rule over this earth. There's debates over the ark and the flood. They will use the word tithing dogmatically upon their people. They will uh, say if you don't speak in tongues, you are not saved. There is church governess debate and a whole bunch of strictly enforced uh, man-made ideas relative to dancing, dating, dress, smoking, drinking, and just about everything else you can imagine. So people grow up in these churches, 
They firmly believe their pastor, pope, priest, and prophet that what they have been taught is absolutely biblically true. And then they get out and they grow up a little bit. And they get online or they open up the, the word. They start questioning, which is what young people do. And they start learning, what? What? And then we have opposing sides, which produce uh, evidence that shows they have been lied to from the world. And they say, wait, the world is telling me the truth, but my pastor lied to me? And so we lose them in that way. In many, many ways, each of these issues, plus many more that I failed to mention, are very similar to the Easter celebrations held on church lawns all over the world. They appear to have a biblical meaning. They appear to have the tacit support of God, and they're from Him. But in the end, they're used to bolster a false and fake faith. What makes their present uh, presence most sinister is they usually are presented to believers as if they were forged on the anvil of God himself. Therefore, there are no alternative views allowed to somebody who is going to be deemed a good Christian, a good believer. And if you don't toe the line with what they say is absolutely true, uh, you are labeled a heretic or gulp, worse than that, not saved. And that is uh, unbelievable. I want to tell you two stories to illustrate what I'm talking about. I hope by illustrating them, uh, sharing them, it will illustrate the importance of exposing and exploring the dogmatism existing in the Christian fundamentalism today and the reason that many of their claims must be honestly challenged by believers, not by the outside world. Believers have to step up and do the job. The first is a story of a fundamentalist pastor preacher who graduated from Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, and Princeton Theological Seminary. All his life, he was fed fundamentalist lines and lies. All his life, he trusted in what he was told. It included in the lies with a tale that there was absolutely no mistakes in modern versions of the Bibles. Biblical inerrancy always relates back to the original manuscripts, not the, the, uh, the versions that we have today, and yet the fundamentalists will say the versions we have today are perfect, or if you say, well, there's some things, they'll say, ah, no, 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 well, there's a few things, but we can explain them all, that's baloney, it's baloney. You can't explain them all. There are differences. It doesn't make the Word of God less viable. The Word of God is, is beautiful. It's come through beautifully. I study it. I study it, to use a bad term, religiously. Every day, I love it. In it, we find all the things that we need, but there are some scribal and there are some, uh, uh, some issues with a few minor things. But to dogmatically say there's nothing only sets a person up for being disappointed. Okay, they also say that uh, he was also told the earth is without question six or seven thousand years old. So is the universe and the Bible says so. We're going to show that that is not true. It's not true at all. He was told that the Garden of Eden covered the entire world. That's not true. And that's what fundamentalists will say, even though the Bible says it was in the vicinity of, of these uh, three rivers. He, he was told that there was no death before the fall. I've always wondered about that claim. There's no death before the fall. I've taught it myself. Well, when Adam and Eve ate fruit and vegetables, did those vegetables die or did they keep on living within, the, within them? These dogmatic positions that they take when examined under scrutiny are, are shown to be 
shaky and it only hurts the faith of those who have embraced them. They were told that the flood was worldwide, period. No discussion about it. We'll talk about that. On and on, this man was fed unrelenting fundamentalist position, not being allowed any alternatives. Today, he is an atheist. A professor of religious studies, a professor of religious studies at University of North Carolina. His name is Bart Ehrman. Now, let me tell you something. The guy is powerful in his assassination of Christianity. What happened to Bart Ehrman? He accepted dogmatic fundamentalist claims which are not supported by the Bible and had his faith shattered right along with his trust in God altogether when he learned firsthand they were not true. That angers me. It angers me so much that somebody is lost because the teaching was not honestly presented according to what the Bible says. That means sometimes the teaching will say, the Bible says this, we don't know if it's this, we don't know if it's that, but this is what it says. We, or, or the Bible says this, some people say that means this, some people mean it says that, but this we do know, Jesus came, he died, he resurrected, and we've trusted in him and we have eternal life because of it. But, but with, with these things, there are viable options. There are alternatives, and we keep learning and growing. But the fundamentalist says, no, no, no. We are going to grip on to our traditions with everything we have to make sure that nobody shakes or loses any ground, and all it does is hurt faith. That's what the LDS have done. They have clung to their doctrines. They have defended them when they are errant, and people have learned the truth and walk away. And that has angered me as well. Ehrman, of course, isn't without his own faults. I'm sure he's very, very smart, and maybe his intellectualism got the best of him. Quite possible. He has a personal responsibility in, in the midst of discovering truth to listen to the Spirit as well. And it could be that he decided not to, and he chose the hard, cold facts over sometimes having to choose to live by faith. I don't know. What we do is what the Bible says to do. We prove all, all things. That's in First Thessalonians 5.21. We try the spirits, whether they are of God or not. We test and try them. We prove them whether they are of God or not. That's part of what I've, I've done when I've gone to visit churches. I test and try the spirits to see, are they of God or not? I have a hard time when, 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 when a lead singer of a Christian uh, band at church on Sunday is uh, you know, uh, up there being John Bon Jovi with a fog machine. I'm trying that spirit and it tests and I say, I, I wonder about this, God. What is this about? And like it says in the Bereans in Acts 17, uh, 11, Contextually, we examine scripture, receiving the word with all readiness of mind. We go to the word, we open it up, we look at it, we study it, we search the scriptures daily to see whether the things people are telling us are so or not. And we don't just roll over and say, feed me, I believe it, I'm going on my way. It's faulty. Along the way, we also try to hear to Paul's admonition in Philippians 4.8, which says, Brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think, think on these things. 
The second story comes from my own experience. While I was still LDS and searching for truth, I came to know the principal of our three daughters' school. My wife is good friends with her. She's an accomplished woman, very refined, and a follower of Christ. One afternoon, our daughters came home uh, with a letter taped to their shirts, and uh, in it, the principal was warning all parents about a dangerous practice that was going on in and around the United States. The letter went on to describe in detail the fact that there were sinister people going into movie theaters that were playing children's movies primarily and sticking used hyper hypodermic needles into the seat cushions so when the children sat down they would get injected with various diseases particularly AIDS at the time which was a scare. The letter quoted a senior representative from the Atlanta Center for Disease Control that warned the parents of children to be very aware of this situation and since the needle uh, placers were everywhere a nationwide alert had to be disseminated uh, the, the letter also included some official-looking uh, other names and stamps and looks like it came from official distribution. Well, I really like this principle, uh, and I, but I thought something smelled so fishy about that letter, and, uh, and I wanted to protect her from looking you know, foolish if it wasn't true. So I actually called the, the Atlanta uh, Center for Disease Control, and I asked for the man named in the story, and he actually worked there. And uh, the phone rang, but his secretary came on and said that they had been getting uh, all kinds of calls. The story was not true. The man did, in fact, work for the CDC, but the, they used his name and title to prop up the story. It was all just a myth. But the important part of me telling you the story was what came afterward. I called the principal that afternoon, and, 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 and my call was not really well received when she knew what I was talking about. She was friendly at first, and when I explained, you know, I just, I just didn't feel really right about the information in that letter, so I thought I'd call uh, the Center for Disease Control and find out what was going on, and I come to find out it's a hoax. Instead of being grateful or, or humbled by her mistake and being like, oh my goodness, I sent something out to everybody, I better send out another letter, she got angry. And she said, well, someone really put a bee in your bonnet. Sounded just like church lady to me. And I said something to the effect that I was only trying to get to the truth and she replied with something to the effect of, was getting to the truth going to do more good than letting that knowledge of that type of thing possibly being out there lie? And I didn't realize at the time I had just had my first interaction with a true Christian fundamentalist. They, the desire to promote and protect Christian platforms at any cost is far more important than, uh, than um, truth, than what is true. They would rather keep a myth alive in order to protect the young and innocent than get to the truth of something and let God reign. This is particularly interesting in the area of science of late. Putting truth on the back burner and cooking up a fresh pot of insanities to defend against growing issues of uh, evolution, a Christian fundamentalist organization known as Christian Ministries International actually posted 41 things that Christian apologists, fundamentalist creationist apologists, have to stop saying to people, okay? These errant arguments the Christian apologists use include the following of the most popular. Let me read you a few. They will say Darwin recanted on his deathbed. It's not true. They'll say moon dust thickness proves a young moon. 
Young Earth then, Young Universe, not true. It's, they say NASA computers in calculating the position of planets found a missing day in 40 minutes proving Joshua's long day and Hezekiah's sundial movement of Joshua 10 and 2 Kings 20. Um, it's a hoax in, in, in worldwide circulation. Woolly mammoths were snap frozen during the flood catastrophe. Not true. NASA faked the moon landings. Not true. Uh, there's other things I, I'm not going to even go into. Uh, DuBose renounced Java Man as the missing link and claimed it was a giant gibbon. Not true. The Japanese trawler Zioa Mara caught a dead pleosaur dinosaur near New Zealand. Uh, the carcass was almost certainly a rotting shark. Not true. The second law of thermodynamics began at the fall. This group, this Christian group, says stop using these arguments, and yet the fundamentalists continue to use them. If we evolve from apes, why are there still apes today? It doesn't even line up with the evolutionist arguments. Women have, more, uh, more, have one more rib than men. That's not true. Uh, uh, there are no beneficial mutations. No species have been uh, produced. Uh, the Septuagint records the correct Genesis chronology. This is not so. The gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. There are gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. Not so. Jesus cannot have inherited genetic material from Mary. Otherwise, he would have inherited original sin. Not so. There is so much that they use. Laminin. An amazing look at how Jesus is holding each of us together. Stop using the argument. There are so many things. Gold chains have been found in coal. Play tectonics are fallacious. The gospels and the stars. Creationists believe in microevolution, but not macroevolution. All of those things have been discredited. And there's a, there's a giant list of them on their website. When Christian organization Answers in Genesis, led by Ken Ham, listed a similar cease using these arguments list, they were not thanked for providing Christian believers with the truth, but they were chided and they, people got angry at them with emails and phone calls. Ken Ham uh, in Answers in Genesis wrote, quote, In November of 2001, Answers in Genesis published an article on its website entitled, Arguments We Think Creationists Should Not Use. Ham then relayed a story of a man approaching him at a conference and said, quote, Evolutionists are have, have so much evidence. If you people at Answers in Genesis keep destroying some of the greatest evidence we've had, there will be nothing left for creationists. You're helping the evolutionists win. End quote. Ham says we are telling them the truth of things and the, the fundamentals are saying stop telling us the truth. We want to use lies in order to try to win the argument with the evolutionists. Truth is helping the evolutionists win. Look, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. There is no winning in a war that has already been won by him on the cross. He won it. Uh, here's the first problem. Somehow Christian fundamentalists think there is a war to be won. There is a war that is engaged, but we win it by sharing Christ. We win it by standing by the fundamentals that we know are true as Christians. We don't win it by going to battle and trying to win a war against evolutionists. 
Um, there's not a war to be won. Christians have nothing to fear when it comes to any advance in science or knowledge. They can discover anything in science and knowledge. You don't have to worry because it's not going to go counter to the Word of God. Somehow, some way, the truth will become clear. And if it doesn't, we will walk by faith. We know the answers are there. We have the Word of God. But listen, it is not a science book. Don't try to make it into one. The creation in, in Genesis is barely even talked about. God does not tell us how he does anything. He doesn't tell us how he created anything. He just says, and then this day this happened, and this day this. I mean, if it was a science book, it would be 70 billion tombs long, hold it, held in a library. It is not. So why are you trying to fight and use errant information as a means to uh, fight against it? All truth will only lead to validation of our long-standing, even our ancient beliefs. Any scientific discovery will support Christianity. All right? But we do have to completely avoid using errant interpretation, interpretations of God's Word to encourage certain fundamentalist positions that are more and more proving to be non-biblical and incapable of withstanding modern evidences to the contrary. I am not, if you think, losing faith here. Uh, I am approaching faith with reason, something that has been lacking in Christian fundamentalism circles forever. Attitudes of fear and defensiveness always exist in people who lack faith. When they hear something, it's a lack of faith that causes them to retaliate with half-witted uh, reasonings and solutions to give answers to people. Uh, you know, the church has done more of its fair share in faithlessly responding to challenges it has feared through very horrible anti-Christ, anti-Christian ways. Let me give you a couple of examples before we go to the uh, phones. We don't have phones. Let me go to a couple of examples before we go to the emails and go to a spot. Copernicus decided in 1500 AD that the sun is the center of the solar system. But he kept his theories secret for 30 years because he didn't want to draw the wrath of the church. Shortly after publishing Revolutions of the Heavenly Bodies, he died in old age and he was spared their angry response. But they got their revenge anyway. They buried in him in a grave that was marked none of his accomplishments. And um, they kept silent about his work for 70 years until the appearance of Galileo. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin, in God's name, repudiated Copernicus's claims as being evil. Okay? It was right there that Christians decided, look at an advance in science threatens us. We are then going to attack the messenger. Copernicus was not wrong. When Bruno came along, he publicly and bravely chose to defend Copernicus, and the Inquisition arrested him, tortured him, and burned him at the stake. A man called the father of modern science, Galileo then, was the first astronomer to claim actual evidence that the earth was not the center of the universe, but revolved around the sun. From this, Galileo came under intense criticism from, and persecution from the Catholic Church. Pope Urban VIII personally gave the order in 1633 that Galileo, who was then 70 years old, should be threatened with torture if he did not renounce the heresy that the earth revolved around the sun. Under repeated threats of torture, Galileo, Galileo finally, he actually renounced what he knew to be true. He was then placed under house arrest and wasn't freed from prison until he was blind. 
technically, the Catholic Church never convicted Galileo of heresy, uh, but they defined that the earth rotating around the sun was um, vehement suspicion of heresy. To leave absolutely no doubt about how completely it condemned the ideas of Galileo, the church censored and prohibited all of his books from being public, uh, published for 200 years. That is ugly religious power. Where is the simple followers of Christ who say, wow, that's a really interesting discovery. The earth revolves around the sun. I would say, well, that makes sense. I mean, the sun is light. God made their universe. We revolve around light. Glory be to God. We found out something new. But no, to try to seek and hide it and punish those who uh, uh, participate. And don't think that the Protestants are any better than the Catholics. Uh, every Protestant church before 1800 rose up in bitter opposition, uh, calling Galileo atheistic because of that finding. Rene Descartes, Cartesian philosophy, the man, the philosopher who went out and sought to prove that God exists. That was one thing that, that he proved, all right? That guy, he was, uh, he was treated hostily and, and persecuted greatly, and uh, all his books were prohibited, and Protestant theologians in his resident Holland wanted to torture him and put him to death, you see? And all of this stuff still goes on today. We see it when we take stances on things that are not biblically understood. The Bible, 99.9%, Correct. Perfect. But we go and we read into it and we say, this is what it means. We're wrong. And then we get ourselves into trouble. Scientific advances, let them come. William Buckland, Adam Sedgwick, Louis Agassiz, Charles Lyell, all of them talking about the flood. They went out to prove the flood true in the 19th century. They're Christian geologists. And they started to come around and say, you know, uh, we don't think that the, the, the earth is only 6,000 years old. You know, and one by one, they recanted their belief in the literal interpretation of Genesis, and they accepted the findings of modern geology. And for their intellectual honesty, they came under great attack from the church. They were called infidels. They were called uh, impuners of the sacred record, assailants of the volume of God. Their geology was condemned as dark art, dangerous and disreputable, a forbidden providence, internally, uh, infernally, arti infernal artillery and an awful invasion in the testimony of Revelation. You know, and all they did was say, look it, we think that there's something to the Genesis explanation that we're missing. Not that it's wrong, but that we've been wrong in our interpretation of it. Is that okay to do? I mean, do we, do we just assassinate everybody who goes against us? I don't think we do. I think that we simply stand for what we believe and we move on. So we are all believers in a king who is not of this world. We do not need to battle, and we especially do not need to battle using half-truths or myths or to fight against them. We walk in faith. We trust that His Word gives us the information we need. And if science comes along and says, suggests that something has been off in our beliefs, like, like the sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun, we say, okay. You know, we've misinterpreted what we thought at one time. There's no loss in that, but that is not typically what happens, especially in the areas of Christian fundamentalism, which we're going to get into the specifics of next week. There are answers, viable solutions, sound reasoning available to us. We have nothing nor anyone to fear, but reason cannot take a back seat to hyperbole and fanaticism, dogmatic positions, unless the Bible takes them. 
I am dogmatic that Jesus is the only way. He's the way, truth, and life. I'm uh, dogmatic that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is true, and it will lead a man closer to him than any other book on the face of this earth. I'm dogmatic that Jesus rose on the third day. I'm dogmatic that we are saved by grace through faith and nothing that we can do. I'm dogmatic that, that Jesus was God. I'm dogmatic on those points that were there. They're all there, but I, we refuse dogmatism in areas that continue to change. And, what the, and we have to look at what the Bible really says. All right, let's take a minute, review a spot about the ministry. When we come back, some emails. For I consider that the sufferings of this present Welcome back. Uh, listen, for your reading pleasure, if you're looking for more information and attitudes that might open you up to some of this stuff, Malcolm Muggeridge's The End of Christendom is a good book. I'm not recommending all the books by these authors, but some of them might open your eyes to some new views. Stanley Harawas, uh, Harawas uh, After Christendom, Stuart Murray's uh, Church After Christendom, The Naked Anabaptist, and Post-Christendom, Church and Mission in a Strange New World, Leslie Newbigin, The Other Side of 1984, and Foolishness to the Greeks. And uh, these are some of the uh, books that you might check out. We got an email from uh, a woman who says, uh, please help me understand what to do with my husband. He is LDS. I have discovered the Mormon church to not be true. What do I do with my husband and my children who still believe it is? We get this question all the time. And uh, the best response I can give to you is you love him as Christ uh, uh, loved. You serve him. You become a better wife and mother because of your newfound faith. You don't become worse because you left Mormonism. That's what they want you to do. You become better. And that will send a clear message to your husband that you still love him, that you still love the kids, and you are uh, seeking to serve him as Christ would serve, you see. Uh, the other way is, uh, is destroys families, destroys lives, and that, I do not believe for a second, is of God. So that's how I would suggest you handle the situation. Um, This is great news. Someone talking about the new website uh, streaming. I'm so glad to hear, especially right now. I've been so discouraged lately. This is from Monica. I recently discovered yet again how bad the so-called evangelical Christian leaders are misleading people. This time it's regarding Christian colleges. My son is a junior in high school and he's on a college search. And he went and he checked out Liberty University. And I can't believe she says that these academic Pharisees mandate community service, chapel attendance in order to be worthy to graduate. Uh, makes me sick to my stomach. Sounds like another BYU. But then again, they did support Mitt Romney, so what can you say? 
Uh, I'm from Beaumont, Texas. Ran across your program a couple years ago. I'm happy to see where you're going with it. I wish you all luck. Haven't watched in a long time. Misgivings. Uh, not out of misgivings or being offended. I was never LDS. Sadly, this past election season, I did let my disdain for Obama cloud my judgment and threw my support behind Romney. I'm pretty complete. I'm pretty ashamed of it right now, to be honest, after watching your program, because you're completely right. Had he won, so Mormonism would have won worldwide. I'm glad he didn't win, even though I'm not happy that Obama won. I have to say, speaking of evangelical churches, that the one I have attended for nearly seven years now has never gotten itself into the political foray of party affiliation, at least not the messages preached there. From what we have seen uh, preached is Jesus and Jesus crucified. And uh, he goes on and shares some other things about the church. That's from Scott L. Listen, there are a lot of churches out there, and we respect and honor them, these pastors who week in and week out, they serve their church like a shepherd serves his flock. They feed them the word of God. They serve them in their times of trial and need. They, they sit with them and counsel with them. They pray in their churches. They sing hymns to uh, glorify and worship God. These churches we honor and we support and we encourage people to support them and go to them and make them your church. But again, if your pastor is not teaching the word of God, and, he, and I mean he's not teaching it verse by verse. And I say that not as a law, but the problem with topical teachings is you don't get the context of what is being said. Verse by verse brings in the context. Topical teachings are easy for somebody to kind of buffer their own opinions. But when you come across a tough verse, you got to face it. When you don't do verse by verse, pastors will often bypass the tough chapters in scripture and go to the meaty ones, which are interesting. But God's word is God's word and we have it for a reason and he wants us to hear all of it and learn all of it. And so we learn all of it. But so that's why I continue to say the verse by verse. Dear Sean, while you are disapproving of Joseph Smith, isn't it possible to disapprove, to disprove, excuse me, while you are disproving Joseph Smith, isn't it possible to disprove Jesus Christ? This is from a Latter-day Saint. You cannot prove that Jesus Christ existed, that the New Testament is the Word of God. You cannot prove the miracles of Jesus Christ were nothing but a fable written down in a fairy tale book entitled the New Testament. You may think that if you could get Mormons to quit their church and join some other church, but what may instead is the conversion of a Mormon into an atheist. What say you on the subject? I love when they always end with some poetic thing. What say you on the subject? Well, what I say is this. Uh, we can prove, at least compared to the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, that Jesus did exist. And I'll tell you why. We have historians who are not Christians who write of him. So there's, there's one thing. We can prove the land in which he lived exists because it's still there. There is no Zarahemla. There is no land. There is no narrow neck of land. All of that stuff in the Book of Mormon, not found. We can prove it exists through its language, through the Hebrew language. We can prove that Jews existed and their culture existed and there was uh, an Egypt and there was a this and there was a that. All of that is proven. So while now you say we can't prove Jesus existed, but we can prove things through evidences that we have that support it, around it. You don't have any proof of any of the doctrines or books that you hold as true or sacred. So I would challenge you right there that what I say on the subject is the purpose is seeking truth. You know, and Jesus said it really clearly. Those 
who love the truth will find it. Those who are His, they want the truth more than anything else. They don't want to be lied to. They don't want a bunch of stories. And when they're getting stories and when they're being lied to, they will become fed up with it and they will go and seek the truth. Those who love darkness more than light will always embrace the darkness. And that's a choice. That's the choice people make. And that's what Jesus said the difference is. So, that being said, Latter-day Saints who are seeking truth will find it. Latter-day Saints who are happy with where they are will not. And that's the end of the story. Um, I am a born-again Christian. My wife is a new ex-Mormon. She resigned from the LDS Church two years ago and has had her records moved last month. My brother is a pastor at this church, Southern Baptist, Rose Park. You said your feelings on the subject about the tulip. The tulip is the, the five points of Calvinism that were made up after John Calvin died, and they kind of summarize the five things that make up Calvinism. And, uh, and those five points, if they don't all exist, uh, then Calvinism fails. My problem is I agree with some of the tulip, but I don't agree with all of it. And one day we'll have a show, in fact, it's going to come up in this year, about what is wrong with it, and etc. Uh, Sean, I'm 20 years old from Logan, leaving on my mission about six weeks. For the last year, I've been watching a lot of your Heart of the Matter of YouTubes. I find your arguments well-supported, well-researched. But what I don't like about the videos is the type of callers that you have call in, that I have call in. It's obvious that there are a lot of uneducated Mormons who are just mad and are using statements they know little about. I'd like you to, I'd be more convinced if you actually had church officials stake presidents, 70s, mission presidents, debate religion with you. If you had hosted them, uh, you need to post them so that I can see somebody who knows what they're talking about debate you. Uh, and that's signed from Brett R. in Logan, who's going on his mission. Well, I want you to know, Brett, that we have invited time and time and time and time and time and time again uh, LDS officials to come on the show. In fact, Scott Gordon of FAIRS, the president and the guy who started FAIRS, we said, you can come on the program. You can have a full hour alone without me baiting you. You can say everything that's misunderstood about Mormonism on the air. And the following week, I'll come in, and then I will refute the things you have said. He refused to do it. So, you know, people, all the stuff, if someone wants to come and debate, they are more than welcome. And on our new set, which we are going to be at next week, uh, we will uh, have room for guests. So look for the new set, the new place next week. We couldn't get there this week, even though I said we would. Now, uh, finally, before we wrap up, Provo Orem, according to uh, Princeton, New Jersey researchers, is the most religious uh, city in the United States of America. That... I believe. And we will see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Woo -hoo 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 -hoo.